I'd just like to begin by saying um, what an honor it is to be back here at the Force Refuge, which was once my home for many years, and to be able to share with you during this time. In coming back, it's just so striking, you know, what a beautiful environment it is, uh, what a supportive place it is for practice. And I think one thing that's grown for me even more from having been more out in the world in the last years is appreciation for, at least in the United States, how hard it is to find time for retreat. Um, How hard it is to get all the holidays. You know, for many of you, it could be the only holiday you get in a year. Um, And I just want to say how much I appreciate that you have chosen to come and practice as your holiday. (laughs) And I know it can be an unusual holiday, but I certainly know that it can be transformative in so many ways. And so thank you all for just being here and having, you know, setting with that willingness to set aside all of the other things we might do. You know, I realize that you didn't choose to go to a beach or to, you know, um, do anything of that nature, but just to come here and to look deeply into your own hearts and minds. And when I think of tonight's talk, when I first sat down and I looked around the room and realized that so many of you have just arrived and remembering what the process of settling into retreat can be like, I kind of wondered whether I have the right topic for tonight or not, because on some level, we're going straight for the meat. <laughs> we're, uh, you know, it's not a sweet talk, Dharma talk, <laughs> um, by any means, and yet why I chose it was because I find that these I'm going to be offering four reflections that really help to turn the mind towards the Dharma. And what I notice for myself and my own experience is even though I have the best of intention, even though, you know, the aspiration of my heart, we, we talked about this this morning in the reflection, where there's a real nobility of heart in there where we aspire to wake up out of confusion. We aspire to alleviate the pain, the distress, the suffering in our lives. We aspire to be able to help other beings to do the same. And this is noble. And this is something to be nurtured. And yet, as we do so, what do we come across? What do I come across? (laughs) I have certainly discovered in my own mind just places of complacency. You know, just sometimes life is comfortable. Why would I do anything, you know, but enjoy the comfort that I might find myself in? Or I have habits that I'm comfortable in, even the ones that create suffering that somehow that becomes more known to me. And so comfort in that, what can be unpleasant, but it's known. Comfort in habits of mind that just don't challenge me. 
And so because of not seeing clearly, because of having some assumptions like, I'm going to be here tomorrow, we might not fully turn up in our lives. And for years, I have struggled at times with what some people call right effort, energy. And it's like sometimes that effort, energy doesn't feel accessible. There is, it doesn't feel like there's a willingness of heart. And yet what I found when I bring these reflections to mind, it wakes me up out of my complacency. It can help to evoke a sense of spiritual urgency that there's work that needs to be done here in this moment. There's a way that I can turn my mind in this moment that is going to be beneficial, helpful, that's going to help me to see life as it is rather than being caught in my deluded perceptions that keep me complacent that keep me from living life fully. And so tonight I offer these reflections. They always seem like a good beginning, a good way to arouse interest and a real natural interest because we start to turn the mind in the direction of truth. That's what all these reflections are going to point towards is some level of the truth of the way the conditioned world is. And that if we actually live in alignment with the way the world is, then we aren't looking for it to fulfill something in a way that it never can. Which is, I think, something that we get so caught in in our lives. Just the the search for happiness outside of ourselves. The search for happiness in conditioned reality. That, you know, we have this elusive dream that everything is going to be okay when things are just right. And we, we live our lives trying to make it right, trying to get it right. And then when we don't, we feel like we failed. We feel like we aren't good enough. And it just breathes into the whole experience of life more discomfort, more uneasiness. No, it's already challenging to be a human being and to be subject to all of the changes that we are. But then when we start putting our level of misperception of believing that this conditioned reality in some way is going to bring us this deep and lasting happiness that it just can't do. But we're, we're under a spell in a certain sense. And, you know, it's a spell that gets um, fueled by the world we live in, you know, the advertising world to start with, you know, that our happiness, get the right perfume, get the right dress, get the right car, you'll find it. Now, it's fed all the time. It's fed all the time in the becoming of that we are enticed into, you know, and that we're doing the most we can to do things better. Um, And it becomes, you know, this sense of trying to perfect oneself. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to live that way. 
And so what these four reflections are going to do, or help us to do, is really to turn our mind towards the seeing of the state of reality of conditioned existence, so that we can free our mind from its expectations, from the spellboundedness that we have around uh, conditioned reality and its elusive form of happiness that it so often promises. So the first of these reflections is on the truth of impermanence, that all conditioned things are impermanent, that everything is always changing. Actually, it's not the first. (laughs) Excuse me. The first reflection is one that's really joyous. It's the preciousness of this human life. That this is something rare, hard to obtain, and yet it's here. It's right here, right now. And yet, this is something that we overlook we take for granted. How many times do we wake up in the morning and it isn't like, yay, I'm alive today. I'm here. But instead, it's like, do I have to get up? Do I have to go to work? Do I have to, whatever it might be that we think we have to do? And yet, it's said, human life is not easy to get. And we can look around at all the different forms of life and begin to see that there's a lot of different incarnations we could have had. We could be that black fly that's out on the in the forest. We could be the chipmunk, the squirrel, the deer. We could be a bird, a hawk, an owl. We could be a cow, a dog many different forms of life. And look at, you start looking on the level of insects, how many insects there is in the world. You know, there's so many different innumerable ways we could have been reborn. And yet, we have this human life. And this human life comes with a lot of unique capacities and capabilities. As a human being, it can be that we have levels of survival, that we have levels of struggle, just like the animals. I don't know how much time you spend in nature, but one of my great loves in life has been to be in nature. And it has struck me so deeply 
the level of fear that is in animals. And to watch the, how it's like every creature is looking over its shoulder all the time. There's a couple that I wondered about. I met a skunk once who seemed to have no fear of me, despite my fear of the skunk. <laughs> or a moose. They're very noble in how they stand. But still, they're living on a level of survival. As human beings, we have the capacity to not just be run by instinct, survival, but to really be able to turn and see how to find freedom in the midst of the situations we find ourselves in. This is a huge capacity, a capacity that we have to know, to wake up, to discern, something not to be overlooked, something to be tasted of. We can live our lives very much like the animals, where we're run by greed, wanting, wanting to feed ourselves, where we're wanting to get away from what's unpleasant. But we can also look and see that which is beyond greed, that which is beyond aversion, that which is free of ignorance. We use the very nature that we are born with. We are born with all of the elements, just like everything else. But we have this capacity to know and to know that which is beyond birth and death. I've been amazed in my own life to see how I can take this so for granted, to not realize that this is precious, that this is something that if I can be aware of day to day, moment to moment, that this brings up this vibrancy of life, this inquiring mind, this inquisitive heart, this capacity to love, because this is what's here when we can be fully in our lives. When we recognize the preciousness of this, it's like not letting ourselves just slide tomorrow, tomorrow, I know that I saw this really clearly at one point in my own life when I was quite sick and nobody knew what was going on with it. Um, And so I got worse and I got worse. And one day, you know, I really felt like I'm going to die. You know, just feeling like life wasn't going to go on. And I'm was with some friends, and I told them what was happening with me. 
And they, it was really interesting. Their response was, oh, don't worry. You'll feel better tomorrow. And I'm going, no, no, I don't have tomorrow. And, you know, it was always like, tomorrow, tomorrow. And it really brought this sense of, wait a minute, no, it's now. There was just this sense that now was what there was. I lived through it, obviously, I'm still here. And life went on for a while where I still had that feeling like there was no tomorrow. But there came a certain point where I realized that I needed to live as if there would be a tomorrow because planning comes into the way we live. But I also realized I just needed to be willing to let go of that tomorrow. But it brought back to me the preciousness of this human life. And so this is something that we can reflect upon. And when we do, it brings gratitude, generosity, a sense of rejoicing. How amazing, how amazing that we have this body, this mind, this potential. Right now. It's not even tomorrow. It's just right now. This is where it is. It can be helpful when we wake up in the morning. Just know we've woken up. Wow. There could be a day when we don't wake up. But we have. We're here. Rejoice. In moments where it might feel challenging, remembering that the potential of this life, the possibility, is here and now. the preciousness. So the first reflection, the preciousness of this human life and all of the qualities, capacities that come with this and just looking to make this life meaningful, utilizing it because it is here. The second, everything is impermanent. All of conditioned experience is impermanent. Within that, death is a certainty, death is something that will one day come to be. And we don't know the timing of that. And this again in our lives, there's ways that we get confused, ways that we get confused about impermanence, where when we're pursuing happiness in the world of sense pleasure, in the world of just getting things right, in the world 
in a moment where things feel right, that this is permanent, that will always be this way. When we don't understand impermanence, it keeps us hanging on to experience, hanging on to that which we love, which is dear to us, Most of us understand impermanence rationally. We can see it. We know it. No, the weather today. You know, times when we were just sweltering, dripping, and times where it was, sun came out, got hot, just the way our body felt with it. We might have had many different moods throughout the day, different experiences. Many times, impermanence seems just fine. It's okay, especially when it's about our back pain, our knee pain, when it's something that we don't like. Ah, this too is impermanent. This too will pass. It can be a convenient truth, but it's much harder when it's a loved one that leaves us or dies. It's much harder where we have had some sense of security, stability, and something is rattled. Then it brings up a great sense of loss, great sense of uncertainty insecurity. And yet the fact of life is that all conditioned things are impermanent. And so in our practice, we have great opportunity to really come to know this. And it's so powerful in the scene that it's actually called a gateway to liberation. When we can truly see and live from the understanding of impermanence, we find we are no longer grasping at happiness in these fleeting experiences of life. It's really different when we understand this and live from the place of that understanding than when we only intellectually know it. But the practice that we're doing here is so helpful in just seeing how things come and go. And if you leave at the end of the retreat and you've seen nothing else, this is really helpful. Because this is a fact of life. But we so often live with the illusion of permanence. 
the illusion of permanence, whether it's trying to get life right together or whether it's an illusion of permanence of there being a solid I, me, mine that is unchanging, that is separate. And it's just an illusion, an illusion that we try to protect, that we we get into a whole tiring relationship that is exhausting. It's really helpful to contemplate the inevitability of death, how this body, this mind, will one day cease to be as it is. It's powerful to let in because it does really break complacency. You know, sitting and just reflecting. One day, this I that I have felt like I have known since I was a child, this body that I live with on a daily basis will cease to be. This configuration, this constellation will cease to be. I remember as a small child, I I can remember exactly where I was in the house. I was standing, looking out the window and just trying to imagine the world without me. I mean, this I feeling like the focal point, the lens through which all of life has been viewed. But it will go. This lens will go. What will help us at that time? What will be there to support us? It certainly won't be the new car that we bought. It certainly won't be the job that we've been, you know, trying so hard to do. What will be there? What will support us? What will help us? What if we're not struggling against this fact of life, this transition? What if we enter into death with that same open-hearted inquiry that we can sit here and investigate this body and mind now? What if we have a stable mind that is not thrown about by fear in that moment? Only the Dharma will support us in death. And so the deeper our understanding is from being aware, awake now, the more this will support us at the end of our lives, whenever that may be. And, you know, that's interesting in itself. It can be quite nice to picture oneself aging, 
not that aging is so comfortable, <laughs> but you know, as if we'll be old, we'll have had a really good life, and we'll be dying comfortably in our bed with all of our loved ones around us. I mean, it happens to some people, and that's beautiful. But how many people does it not happen to? We're just suddenly, one day, life is finished in this form. I had um, a friend, and she used to go out and do yoga on her lawn, and her husband would go for a bicycle ride. It was something of their routine. And then one day she went out and she did yoga on the lawn. Her husband rode off on his bicycle, and he came back, and she was dead on the lawn. She'd had a heart attack. Heart attacks, do they happen? A lot. Note that we don't know. It could be us. Certainly, I know as we age and we start to see people around us um, getting different diseases, dying, you know, it brings it home. It brings it closer to home that one day it will be us. But we have this opportunity now. We can practice with diligence to help have understanding that will help us at the time of death. So the second reflection, reflecting on impermanence and how all conditioned things are subject to impermanence. And that means this body this mind, and that we can support ourselves with both becoming more at ease with this fact of life and practicing to support ourselves in any transitions, including death. The third reflection being on the law of karma, of cause and effect, of how what we do, what we say, what's in our minds has an effect. That the, this world of phenomena has a natural law within it that things arise according to um, different causes and conditions, and the seeds that we plant have an effect. We don't live in a vacuum. There's some ways that karma seems simple on one level, like you plant a tomato seed, you get a tomato plant. That seems pretty simple. But it is actually more complex than that because it isn't just the one seed. When we plant a tomato seed, if, we, if it's not nurtured, if it doesn't have the right conditions, it doesn't grow. And so this is where karma becomes more complex. But there's a beauty in the discovery of the understanding of karma, which is really important in our lives, 
Because through the understanding of karma, we can start to feel empowered. We can start to have a sense of what we're, we're turning our mind towards, our hearts towards, what, what we're actually cultivating in our lives. Because if we in our lives are planting seeds that are wholesome, helpful, if we're planting seeds of loving kindness, compassion, care, patience, fruits of that will come to be. And it's not that there's always an immediate fruit, because just like in planting the seed of the tomato, you have to have the right conditions for it to grow. But what happens when we understand karma is that we start to understand in each moment when we meet a moment with kindness, when we meet a moment with awareness, when we're not just reacting out of habit, that there's an effect, there's something that's planted in that that will bear fruit in the future. Karma is related not just to the actions that we have in our lives, but to what motivates our actions. Because we can look at some actions that could appear from an outward sense to be really wholesome. And when I say the word wholesome, it's wholesome in this sense meaning that which is turning the mind in the direction of the alleviation of suffering. And unwholesome be, being that which is perpetuating suffering. And so, really, from on the level of karma, we can either be planting seeds that are helpful, wholesome, that are going to bring about more harmony, more uh, the conditions of ripening to awaken. Uh, or we can be digging a trench. We can be digging ourselves more into suffering, inflicting more pain than, and you know, so we plant these seeds moment to moment in how we turn up in our lives, in what we, what we pay attention to, what we plant seeds of. So we look and we see. We learn through our practice about cause and effect. You know, it's one really easy way to see that our actions have an effect is if we did have done things in our lives that we didn't feel good about. And we come on retreat and we sit down. And maybe it was a while ago in life. But we're sitting there and suddenly we remember it. And, you know, we can feel horrible, guilty. Um, we can really struggle around our past actions. And we just see it didn't lead to a calm and peaceful mind. There was a residue, something that, the, and you know, when the conditions were right, that memory, boom, surfaced again. And we felt it. We can feel it in simple ways when in, in moments when we're practicing and we're in touch with the quality of loving kindness. Just look at how it's reflected in the body, how the mind is. 
that that's that's a where we can see it more closely um, being effect in that moment. Or we're sitting here and we get caught in a state of rage, and we're really you know spinning with rage, and then just look and see what does it feel like? What's the effect of being identified with this state? And when we get locked into anger and we just feed the anger, that's where we start planting the seeds. And if we keep planting, that's what we're going to reap in the future. And you, you know, you, you see it in these days where you get up out of bed and you know, you're slightly aversive. Somebody comes along and you don't like what they're wearing and you snap at them. And then somebody else says something, and you don't like it. And you you know, again, you're really edgy. And you just kind of keep, you're not seeing the aversion. You're not, you're not letting the mind stop, be with, be present to. You're being defined by. And so you keep planting seeds of anger, aversion. But what we really find when we understand karma is we don't have to do that. And this is where it becomes empowering. We can't stop anger from arising from past conditions, but we can be present to it. We can see it in this moment and not feed it. And this is where we start to plant wholesome seeds. No, simple as you kick your toe and you don't then kick, or you stub your toe against a chair, you don't kick the chair. You know, it's just, boom, you be present with. Somebody's angry with you, and you don't just retaliate with anger. You be present with. Or, you know, if the capacity is there, we're in touch with loving kindness, compassion. It's really helpful to just take notice, to look, to see. What seeds are we planting in our lives? We plant wholesome seeds. We can rejoice in this. And that doesn't mean that we plant wholesome seeds. Okay, today I've been really nice and kind. Tomorrow should be a better day. You know, because karma is more complex than that. But what we rejoice in is that in that moment, we are altering the course of our life from the habits of suffering. And that we can rejoice in that we can let our hearts be uplifted by. And so it can be helpful at the end of a day. Just look back. What seeds did we plant today? And you know, certainly there's going to be the scene of moments where we perpetuated that cycle of suffering. And that will just happen. And as we, as we see that, we can right there be with the impact of the seeing of it. We can bear witness right there. Ah, oh, I created some pain. I perpetuated some maybe anger. You know, I really gave into it and I became it and I, I caused harm out of it. But then we don't have to continue to carry it. We can recommit to non-harming, to understanding this anger and how 
it is not the sum total of who we are. So we turn and we also look at what we did that was wholesome, that was helpful. And this is a really good practice to do because many of us have conditioning of not seeing the goodness. You know, that we are really can, oh yeah, I, I was, I was kind of nasty there. I was, um, you know, fearful there. I, you know, all of the things that we thought we did wrong. But we overlook the moments when there's a natural generosity of heart, where there's a natural caring, where there's a natural kindness. We don't even see many of these moments. You know, you just maybe are on retreat here and you walk past somebody whom you can see they're struggling in that moment. And there's just a sense of, oh, holding them in our hearts for a moment. Or a moment when we have some difficulty ourselves and we don't just immediately judge ourselves for it. Just a tenderness of heart. And noticing these moments of kindness, of care, of love, generosity. Moments of patience when we aren't so hard on ourselves. So our practice really helps us to understand the law of karma, how it governs the conditioned world. And with this, we start to find a level of empowerment. We start to discover also the interdependence of life in this. Because we see that it isn't just good for good, bad, you know, this is bad, immediate, bad result, good, immediate, good result. But there's really many different causes and conditions coming together. And that this is really, we're living in this web of interconnectedness. And it, this starts to help erode this sense of, I have to get it right in this moment and then I'll be happy. You know, we can have kind of a a really limited view of what karma is that isn't helpful because then we're trying to get it right all the time. But what we learn to rest in is just in this moment, I turned up the best that I can. I offered the most of what I could. And even, you know, we don't have to judge that. We just plant the seed and we let those seeds grow in their own time. And that's our part. So our part in how we meet this moment, how we meet this life, and what we meet it with. So it can bring about a whole sense of empowerment, not that we can suddenly control our lives, but that we can reverse this cycle of being caught and perpetuating suffering. And this is freeing. This is liberating. This is something that, when we deeply understand, can change the directions of our lives. And then we just naturally nurture that which brings about harmony, that which is wholesome, that which really leads towards the end of suffering. It becomes a no-brainer, in a sense.
So this is the third reflection. The fourth reflection being on the defects of samsara, the defects of this cyclic existence that we so tightly cling to. And I don't know why, this one recently has started to humor me in some way of just watching the habit to try to make samsara perfect, to try to get it right as if I could. And I actually see it more on retreat than at any other time. But there's something quite humorous in watching watching the mind make this repeated mistake that I can find happiness in the pleasures of life that will be deeply fulfilling if I can just get it right. I mean, this is something so deeply entrenched in my little psyche. You know, to, to coming on retreat, sitting down, getting the cushion perfect, getting, you know, look at how I sit. You know, I have a, something under each knee. You know, just get, get things quite right. Um, getting, you know, we often have a shawl or whatever to have the temperature be just right. And when we really look, there's something defective in this whole way of viewing life. And so we get so enchanted by all of these experiences, conditions, that we fail to see that there's something defective in the very way that we are viewing this. And so we proceed as if we can find that happiness, as if we can be satisfied in that. It was really poignant to me one time on retreat where I was, you know, in all of the different ways. I mean, look at the way you've set up your room. I don't know, maybe some of, maybe some of you haven't done this, but, you know, I, I know I love being on retreat. You know, you're in these beautiful rooms here, and you shut the door, and it's my world, my kingdom. And, and you know, just I, on retreat, I like to have things be neat in their place. Um, as I, you know, one day as I was on retreat and just watching the mind do this, and it was on a retreat where things got rattled, things got shaken up, the way I'd set up my world got shaken, but then as soon as I could, I was recreating this again. And then it was right then that I heard this thought in my mind, you know, you're never going to create a pleasant little samsara. And it was like, right. (laughs) You know, it's an impossible task. And so what do we start to do? What, and this practice, it's so beautiful for this. The examination of suffering, the, the different ways that we suffer, and understanding the cause of this suffering. You know, this is the exploration we do on retreat. It's hardly even that we need to reflect on it because it's what we start to see as we practice. 
that we start to see that there is levels of suffering. There is just you know the gross level of suffering, the ordinary level where things are really unpleasant. Um, you know, mental states that are tormented, uh, difficult conditions in our lives. The uh, the ups and downs of life, we, we really, you know, we start to see there's this level of suffering that's there. We start to see that there's a suffering that comes with change. You know, and so this is where it starts to be not just what's unpleasant, but, oh, that peace and that calm that I had yesterday. It's not here today. Where'd that go? We start to see that, you know, that, that too, so the states of mind can be really unreliable. Or the pleasure we have when we're eating something that's delightful, that's good. You know, eating chocolate. You know, the first bite, if we like chocolate, whatever food it might be that we like. Oh, the pleasure of it. But if we eat a pound of chocolate, the pleasure's gone. I mean, unless you have some great resiliency there. (laughs) And so we just see that there's there's a suffering due to change. There's an uncertainty in change. You know, that there's a vulnerability that's within change. So we start to see the suffering of change. And then there's also what's called a pervasive suffering. And this is, you know, it's not that things are dramatically suffering, but the potential in the conditioned world is that suffering is there. And it just pervades. But we start to see, we start to understand that this is the way things are in the conditioned world. And that we don't have to be caught in that. The Buddha taught that there is freedom from this suffering. And, you know, it's so good to remember that we are, as we see suffering, that we aren't practicing to perpetuate that suffering, but to come to understand it, to be free. Find that freedom. Find that release of the heart that is not bound, that is not confined within this contracted sense of identifying with the conditioned world through a lens that defines it in a way that we don't need to be limited, bound by. when we start to really contemplate, to see the defects of samsara, it quite naturally leads us into a sense of willingness to renounce, to relinquish, but in a joyful way. What are we relinquishing? Our suffering. What are we letting go of? Our suffering. And this is something, a way, renunciation is a way that we can come to explore the defects of samsara, to see the defects of samsara. 
And this is something that we will continue to speak about in the next talk from Patricia. But these four, all of these four reflections, they are reflections that are what we come to see in practice, but also to remember at times because they can help to cut through our complacency and bring up that sense of making use of this life, making use and appreciating, rejoicing in this life. And utilizing this life to the full potential that we can. And knowing that this alone, this intention alone, has an effect. And we can find a resting place in this. We do the best that we can and let that be enough. So let's just sit for a moment. And closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings, reflection on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.